English 325. Um, welcome in our last day to all of you listening in. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. I hope you've had a good time with me this semester and all of you here today. It's been, uh, it's been a blast. Fridays have been fun in this class. I've liked it. Um, you know, I think somebody might have a question about the final. Uh, I have a question. Does <laughs> yeah. the final essay have to be like a certain amount of words or length? Um, it doesn't have to be a certain amount of words or a certain length. I mean, maybe the best way to think about this is that is that it's a two-hour exam. You know, everybody, I think, reasonably finishes the short answers in an hour because that's like what the midterm was. So if you were thinking like, okay, I'm gonna come to an in-person class, physical classroom with like uh, notes on an essay, how, how much could I write in an hour, right? Um, and so that's not like, you know, a couple of five sentence paragraphs, but it's also not like 10 pages. So I would probably, if you were like writing the whole thing out prior to the exam, you got to think like, okay, I need an introduction that kind of suitably sets the stage and provides a, a thesis. And then I need, um, you know, enough work on each of these texts where I'm demonstrating that I've, you know, have some textual details and I'm thinking beyond the lecture material. So, you know, it's probably not just like one five sentence paragraph per book. And then I actually have to do some, some comparative work. So maybe I structure the paper like, you know, I'm talking about the first book and then I'm talking about the second and then I'm bringing them together. Or maybe I'm thinking more thematically and I talk about one idea with relation to both and then another idea with relation to both. And so once you put all of those facets together, including like maybe a little bit of a conclusion, you know, I think that if you were writing it out on like double spaced pages, you're probably getting close to four, five, four at that point. I think that's probably reasonable. I think if you're like in the two page range for the essay that you're writing, it's not, you're not, you're not thinking enough about it. Um, but if you're, you know, going into like six pages or something, you're probably doing a little too much. Does that make sense, Bree? Any other questions about the final? Peyton, can you hear us? Peyton, I'm, I'm very worried right now because my Christmas tree fell over the other day and you, and it just like, just six, seven foot Christmas tree just right over and you, your Christmas tree is right behind you. And I'm just, I'm, I'm worried that you're gonna get smashed right now. How did mine, you asked how, uh, I don't know. It just was on a stand and then the whole thing fell over. Nobody was under it, thankfully. And we only lost a couple of ornaments. But just watch yourself, Peyton. If anything happens, I am, I am recording and I don't usually keep the videos, but I will if that tree falls on you. Uh, other questions, comments, concerns about the final? Uh, apologies, I forgot to put up the guiding questions until like two hours ago. Of course, it's the last day of class, I forget to put up the guiding questions. So I've just tanked my CTEs. None of you will ever take another class with me again. I apologize. Um, but they're up there now, and so I won't, you know, I 
tend not to assume that anybody's read them in the first place, but I won't assume that anybody's read them today. So uh, we'll just go from there. Um, okay, shall we get started? Anything else to say before we get going on this beautiful last day of Maggie? Uh, you know, I, I really, you know, you might not know it, from our discussions, but I, I have a bit of a dark streak in me and I like finishing with a book where everybody just kind of dies. It's, it's an interesting way to finish the class. I hope it wasn't too depressing for you as you move into finals week. But uh, you know, it's a naturalist text. So what do, you, what do you expect people? It's doing what the genre tells us it's gonna do. So, you know. All right, let's get started. Maggie, a girl of the streets. Continue on with our discussion potentially with reference to that essay prompt that might be on the exam, right? Asking you to think about this book in relation to the coquette. I hope that as you're reading this book, especially with, with reference to some of the things that we mentioned in class on Wednesday, I hope that you can really see that there are a lot of confluences here between these two texts. They're actually really interesting to think through um, in relation to one another. Um, so yeah, I'd encourage you to, to think about that essay. Um, and maybe prepare it. Okay, let's get started. Mary, Maggie's mom, and Jimmy, why are they so upset over Maggie's actions? I want to talk about two reasons why. I'm going to try and read this with the, uh, the appropriate accent. In the darkness of the hallway, Jimmy discerned a knot. I like a knot of women. I like describing a, a, a group of people as a knot. A knot of women talking volubly. When he strode by, they paid no attention to him. She always was a bold thing, he heard one of them cry in an eager voice. There wasn't a feller come to the house, but she'd try to mash him. Mash him means like, I don't know, uh, flirt with him? Maybe try to have sex with him? I don't know. My Annie says the shameless thing, try to catch her feller, her own feller, what we used to know her, his father. Okay, and I'll read the next one. We'll talk about why Mary and Jimmy are so upset over Maggie's actions. This is uh, Mary, this is Maggie's mom. And with all the bringing up she had, how could she, moaningly she asked of her son, with all the talking with her I did and the things I told her to remember, when a girl is bringed up the way I bringed up Maggie, how can she go to the devil? Jimmy was transfixed by these questions. He could not conceive how under the circumstances his mother's daughter and his sister could have been so wicked. So why is it that Mary and Jimmy are upset over what Maggie's doing, which, you know, so far as we know, it's just kind of like hanging out with Pete, right? Why are they upset? What's the implication of these passages first? Maybe they think that she's like kind of sweaty in a way for like hanging out with guys. Yeah, this is what the kind of people in the hallway are talking about with regard to her being a bold thing. Or this is the implication of what her mom is talking about with the idea of her going to the devil, right? So there's a gendered implication here, right? And this kind of filters into the next question that's asked on this slide, right? But there's, an, there's a gendered implication here, right? They are upset with Maggie, Maggie's actions because she is doing things. Again, this is a connection back to Eliza Wharton and the coquette, right? She is doing things that don't align with the expectations of what a young woman in a conservative context should be doing, right? We don't really get a lot of 
details as it regards what Maggie is doing, right? But, but we can understand that like, yeah, the fact that she is cavorting around with a young gentleman named Pete, this is something that is a problem for her family with regard to her actions. That's kind of clear enough, more or less explicit, right? With the passages. There's another reason why they're upset too, and it has to do with what we talked about on Wednesday. Can anybody remember why it is, we talked about this, why it is that Maggie is so attracted to Pete? What is it about Pete that she likes about him? Um, uh, like Maggie's attracted to Pete because it seems like he could like move up the social ladder kind of, so he could move away from like his life now. Yeah. And, and by extension, Josie, you're absolutely right. And by extension, by, you know, Pete desiring to move up the social ladder, what that's going to allow Maggie to do is move up that social ladder as well. Right. And it's not necessarily explicit from the passages that I've selected, but I think it's implicit that another reason why Mary and Jimmy are so upset over Maggie's actions is because they perceive in Maggie something that we might call a kind of, uh, a, um, a, a class traitor dynamic, class traitor, T-R-A-I-T-O-R. Does anybody know what a class traitor is? Can think about what that is? Maybe they see her as think, like she believes that she's better than them kind of thing and that she's trying to move up while the rest of them are kind of like staying behind. Right, precisely. Remember, she is so taken and attracted by Pete's condescension. Right. And this is why Mary and Jimmy are upset with Maggie is because she, well, they perceive her to be condescending to them because of her relationship with Pete. Right. Some of you might have experience with this idea of like being a class shooter. I mean, not, I don't know if any of you are particularly, but you know, first generation college students often have this experience where like they'll go away to college and then they'll come back for a holiday or something. And like, all, like all of their aunts and uncles are like, why are you going to college? What is that doing for you? Especially if you're an English major. And then you have to come back to me and say, how do I talk to my parents about being an English major? And then I, I, I will have the chat with you. I will have, we'll have the chat if we need to. But yeah, this is the thing that Maggie is dealing with right here is this kind of idea that like her family is um, upset with her because of her desire, her innate desire, right? That, that, that dirt doesn't run through her veins, remember from Wednesday to uh, her, her desire to transcend, to get out of Ramali, to get out of the Bowery, okay? So there's a gender dynamic here, but there's also a class one. Both reasons why. But then that first point, that point about gender or about sex, that actually transitions us nicely into the second question, right? Which is, is there a double standard in how Mary responds to Maggie's actions, especially given Jimmy's interactions with Hattie? So I wanna read this little interaction between Jimmy and Hattie. So Jimmy sees Hattie on the street. Say for God's sakes, Hattie is a woman that Jimmy's been uh, going with. Let's put it that way. Uh, say for God's sakes, Hattie, don't follow me from one end of the city to the other. Let up, will you? Give me a minute's rest, can't you? You make me tired, all this tagging me. See, and he's got no sense. Do you want people to get into me? Go chase yourself, for God's sakes. So Hattie is chasing Jimmy around, trying to get his attention. The woman stepped closer and laid her fingers on his arm. But look at here. Jimmy snarled, ah, go to hell. 
what's the implication? What is Hattie trying to tell Jimmy? Does anybody kind of understand what's happening here? It's not, it's not strictly stated, but what's implied? Speculative. Maybe like she's only going after him. So she's not like trying to be with other people, but he's not really accepting that. He's just like, why are you only going after me? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so as it concerns Hattie as a character, it's interesting to think about the ways in which she is enamored with Jimmy. Why does she keep following around Jimmy? But the, the, her laying her fingers on his arm actually gives us the answer to that question. Look at here. The implication here and what readers from this time period would know because they are kind of more um, conversant with the coded language and gestures of the time period in which the book was written is that Hattie is actually telling Jimmy right here that Hattie is pregnant with Jimmy's kid. Right? And so that's why Hattie's trying to get Jimmy's attention. Right? That's what's happening here. So, so then knowing that, right, knowing that, which a 19th century reader would have a better kind of ear for, which we just don't because we're, you know, things are a little more transparent and explicit to us in these time periods. Um, but knowing that, how does this double standard play? What's the, what's going on? Mary doesn't have any problem with Jimmy. Mary loves Jimmy. What's the double standard? That she has no problem with Jimmy getting women pregnant, but she has a huge problem with Maggie trying to rise up like the social ladder. Right, precisely, right? So the double standard, yeah, Caitlin, exactly as you're saying, like the double standard here is that like, you know, men can sleep around as it were, right? Without um, uh, social castigation, right? But Maggie, it's, we're not even told that she's doing it, but even the implication that she is, is uh, enough to get her mother to basically disown her, right? And so we see a, a double standard here around gender and around sex. Jimmy isn't shunned by, her, by his society because of his actions, but Maggie is. So, um, Again, this interfaces really interestingly with the coquette, if we're invested in thinking through those two texts, like, you know, Sanford um, is understood to be a rake, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have social opportunities, right? Whereas when Eliza is understood to be a coquette, this kind of like absolutely destroys her life. So, so the more things change, the more they stay the same over the course of the maybe 100 years between these two texts being written. So any questions about that, about the nature of why they're upset over gender and class, and then the fact that there's a double standard with regard to gender here? Okay, let's talk about Nellie. Brilliance and audacity. So what's Nellie's role in this novel? We've been talking a lot about the connection between Pete and Maggie, and how Maggie perceives in Pete a desire to transcend and how Maggie is attracted to that, right? So when Nellie shows up on the scene, Maggie took instant note of the woman. She perceived that her black dress fitted her to perfection. Her linen collar and cuffs were spotless. Tan gloves were stretched over her well-shaped hands. What's a well-shaped hand? Anybody know? Well-shaped? What do you think? I don't know. 
had of a prevailing fashion perched jauntily upon her dark hair. She no, wore no jewelry and was painted with no apparent paint. That means she's not wearing makeup. She looked clear eyed through the stares of the men. So what do we know about Nowages from this description? What's the author telling us about Nowages from this description? I feel like her uh, like demeanor and just like how people look at her, like she fits the like more conservative kind of appearance of a woman. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Um, why? What about this description gives us a sense of her as um, conservative? How it says like her clean collar and cuffs were spotless. Like she's just dressed like perfectly to the T. Like she doesn't have makeup and nails painted, I feel like, which could come off as like her trying to be fake in a way. She's right. natural. Yeah, think about the characters we've been introduced to prior in this book, Maggie and Pete principally, but also Jimmy to an extent. These are characters who really are trying to strive. They're trying to get ahead. They're often doing it in the wrong ways, right? Yeah, she's different, Jen, you're right, and mentioned in the chat. She's different than the other characters in a really important way. Maggie and Pete, they're strivers. They're trying to get ahead, right? Nellie doesn't give off the impression that she's trying to get ahead. Nellie gives off the impression that she's already there, right? And Brie, you're kind of casting this in terms of a kind of conservative bent. I think that's right, right? But we can also just think about it as like, she's made it, right? She is of a higher socioeconomic station. We know that by what she's wearing, how it fits her, how her clothes are clean, which, you know, in the 21st century, we take as a, a given by and large, but in the 19th century, in the middle of a, the most densely populated place on earth, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been something that we assumed everyone would have or even aspire to was clean clothes, spotless clothes, especially on your collar and on your cuffs. Right. These are places that more than like other places on your body are if you're working, if you do menial labor, if you work with your hands. Right. Um, those are places that are going to get dirty. Right. Um, so she's clean. Right. She's of a so higher socioeconomic station. What is it like knowing that knowing her kind of economic situation? What does it mean then for her to not wear jewelry and to not wear makeup? What is that trying to suggest to us? That she's like completely authentic. She has nothing to prove to anybody. We also see that through the way that she looks clear-eyed through the stares of the men, that other people are trying to get her attention, right? That other people are interested in her and she does not give a damn about any of that, right? Because she is confident, right? In her own body, as it were, right? Like she's in a position where um, her privilege, right, the, the life she's lived, right, has afforded her the ability to have a natural beauty that does not need to be augmented by jewelry and makeup. Does that make sense? Right? So it's not just that, like, jewelry and makeup are augmenting natural beauty and kind of fake, quote-unquote, but it's also that like, it's almost as if people who are really, really rich or really, really well off, those are the type of people who like, you think of like Mark Zuckerberg, the man's like a multi, multi, multi-billionaire. What does he wear every day? Just wears, he wears a hooded sweatshirt every day. He wears a black hooded sweatshirt every day. Richest man on earth or one of them, right? Once you attain a certain, yeah, yeah, Brie, exactly. Adam Sandler wears like the baggiest, 
like basketball shorts down to like his mid calf. He looks like a total schlub, but the man's like a hundred, hundred, hundreds, hundreds of million dollars over, right? Once you attain a certain level, you don't have to pretend to be trying anymore. You're just confident in yourself. You've made it, right? Yeah, Adam, Adam Sandler. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, good example, right? Those like way over large t-shirts that he wears and the basketball shorts and like the big basketball shoes that are unlaced. Yeah, exactly. The man's made so much money that he doesn't need to care what you think about what he looks like anymore. That's where Nelly's at, okay? So in any case, what does this um, provoke in Maggie? That's the bigger question here. What does this provoke in Maggie when Nelly comes on the stage? Maggie was dazed. She could dimly perceive that something stupendous had happened. She wondered why Pete saw fit to remonstrate with the woman, pleading for forgiveness with his eyes. She thought she noted an air of submission about her lionine Pete. Lionine means courageous or heroic. She was astounded. So what's going on? Maggie's like confused at this moment. Why? Maggie is, is, is um, all out of sorts. Why is she all out of sorts here? What's happening between Pete and Nellie that's making Maggie confused? Almost like Maggie thinks that uh, Pete should be making a move on her because she clearly looks like she's at a higher class than him and she's almost confused as to why he's not trying to make the move on Nellie. Well, I mean, is Pete, is Pete kind of like, well, Pete is clearly enamored with Nellie, right? But the reason why he's not, let's say, trying to make a move on her is not necessarily um, has anything to do with Maggie. It has to do with the fact that Pete is, has an air of submission around him. He's kind of fearful of Nellie. Why, why is, would that, the fact that Pete has an air of submission and that he's pleading for forgiveness from Nellie, why would that be so confusing, astounding to Maggie? Knowing what Maggie thinks about Pete. Because she sees him as this condescending, like I'm better than everyone else person. And so for him to be almost like scared to approach someone, like it's kind of a shock to her. Right, exactly. Now remember, Maggie had found attractive in Pete Pete's sense of superiority over others. But in this moment, when Nellie comes on the scene, Pete is just a mewling little child, right? He's, he's the one who's inferior. And for Maggie, that kind of sets off a, an astounding confusion. She's in a daze because she believed her Pete to be lionine, to be kind of courageous at the top of the pack. But when he comes into contact with somebody like Nellie, what it what it shows to Maggie is that maybe her perceptions of Pete have been kind of wrong, right? Maybe she's thought about Pete in the wrong ways. She's astounded by what she sees. She's never seen Pete in a situation before where he has been submissive to another. Pete has always been the guy who, you know, stood up to fate and said, ah, fudge, right? Pete's always been the guy who's had an air of condescension around him. Okay. Does that make sense? Why Maggie is kind of astounded by Pete's behavior here as a result of Nellie coming onto the scene? All right, so let's think about that a little bit more then. I'll talk through like Nellie and Pete's relationship. 
Okay, because what I'm trying to do is get you guys to think about how, you know, on Wednesday we talked about the differences between Maggie and Pete and how Maggie misperceives Pete and that kind of leads Maggie awry. What I want to get to today is that actually there's a lot similar between Maggie and Pete, more than Maggie realizes. So what does Nellie instill in Pete? What does Nellie make Pete do? So um, with lingering thoughts of the woman of brilliance and audacity, this is after Pete and Nellie have kind of um, come back together, the bartender, Pete, raised his head and stared through the varying cracks between the swaying bamboo doors. Suddenly the whistling pucker faded from his lips. He was thinking about Nellie, but he's not anymore because he saw Maggie walking slowly past. He gave a great start, fearing for the previously mentioned eminent respectability of the place. So what's happened to Pete? Now, Maggie comes to his place of employment. He doesn't want her there anymore. Why? How is Pete now thinking of himself as a result of his interactions with Nellie? Maybe he thinks that he's like even better than like he deserves better than Maggie. Yeah, right. This is this is now a moment where Pete becomes like Maggie was earlier in the text. Remember how Maggie is seen by her family as condescending for her desire to transcend through her relationship with Pete. Now Pete is clearly having a desire to transcend as well through a relationship with Nellie. And because of that, Pete is condescending to Maggie, right? Pete doesn't want Maggie in his place of employment. Why? Because Maggie is of a lower social station, right? He doesn't want to associate with someone like Maggie anymore now that he knows, or at least he thinks, that he has a chance to associate with someone like Nellie. So whereas earlier in the text, Maggie and Pete obviously would have been very happy to be seen together in public, now Pete wants nothing to do with Maggie in public, doesn't want her around at all. And the change, the catalyst for that change is the introduction of Nellie. Because the introduction of Nellie changes something in Pete. So for Pete, Nellie plays the role that for Maggie, Pete plays. Say that again. For Pete, Nellie plays the role that for Maggie, Pete plays, right? You can almost see him almost in a ladder, right? With Maggie at the bottom, Pete in the middle, and Nellie on top, right? And they're all looking up, except Nellie. She's confident. But Maggie and Pete are looking up, and as they continue to try to scale that ladder, right? Um, well, it's never going to work out for them, but as they continue to try and scale that ladder, they're kicking the people that are below them, right? Trying to knock them off or at least trying to not associate with them. So Pete desires Nellie because she represents an opportunity to transcend his socioeconomic class. But of course we know because this is a naturalist text that that is not going to end well. Right, and we also know that that's not going to end well from this next scene, right, where Pete is out in a bar with Nellie and a bunch of Nellie's friends who are all described as, you know, women of brilliance and audacity, that is to say, they're all described as upper class women. And Pete is trying his damnedest to get them to like him, okay? 
In a partitioned off section of a saloon sat a man with a half dozen women, gleefully laughing, hovering about him. The man had arrived at that stage of drunkenness where affection is felt for the universe. I love you guys, man. You guys are the best, right? Get a couple of drinks in you. That's what happens. That's what's happening to Pete. I'm a good feller, girls, he said convincingly. I'm a damn good feller. Anybody treats me right, I always treat them right. See? The women nodded their heads approvingly. To be sure, they cried out in hearty, cor hearty chorus. You're the kind of man we like, Pete. You're out of sight. What is going to buy us this time, dear? Anything you want, damn it, said the man in abandonment of goodwill. His countenance shone with the true spirit of benevolence. He was in the proper mode of missionaries. He would have fraternized with obscure Hottentots, means like Africans. And after all, he was overwhelmed in tenderness with, for his friends who were all illustrious. So what is Pete doing here? How is he deluding himself? What's happening in this moment? How is he being taken advantage of? Men are like using him to like buy them drinks, pretty much. And why is he put himself in a position to be taken advantage of in that way? What is his desire? He wants to be like seen as good by them. Like he wants to be seen as like the man they would want. Right. He wants to be seen as respectable. He wants to be seen as part of their group, right? And because he's in a drunken haze that is making him, you know, love everybody around him, he doesn't perceive that actually what these women are doing is they're taking advantage of his, not only his kindnesses, but they're also taking advantage of his desire to be more than he is, right? They're taking advantage of him. He doesn't perceive it. He doesn't know. And of course, you know, as a result, what's going to happen to Pete is, you know, more or less similar to what's going to happen to Maggie. Right. So Nellie instills, to just kind of rehearse this, Nellie instills in Pete, again, a desire to transcend, to move up that socioeconomic ladder, just in the same way that Pete instills in Maggie the same desire. Once Nellie comes on the scene, Pete no longer wants anything to do with Maggie. Pete, instead of looking down, is looking up now, and his head is in the clouds, and he's literally deluding himself, thinking that he's going to become friends with Nellie and her friends. And um, he gets himself into an awful mess as a result of that. And we'll talk about Pete's end in a minute. But before we do that, let's talk about Maggie's end, right? So after Pete kind of abandons Maggie, what we get is this kind of really, you know, awful, terrifying final scene where it's not even made clear to us that who we're talking about is Maggie in an interesting way. It's almost as if Maggie's identity has been lost to the text and she becomes an anonymous girl on the streets, right? She's lost her individuality. Remember, this is a woman, this is a girl who blossomed in a mud puddle. She was different than everyone else. And now she doesn't even get a name, right? Now she's just a girl of the cohort. That is to say, one among many. Right. So what does it mean to be a girl of the painted cohorts of the city? Does anybody have that cultural reference? A painted woman, what does that mean in the 19th century? Or maybe you can get it from the context of the rest of that passage. What's her uh, job, as it were, now? 
A prostitute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Maggie has, you know, because not only has she been abandoned by Pete, but she's also been abandoned by her family. She has had to turn to sex work, right? So a painted woman, a painted lady, that's another word for a prostitute. So a girl of the painted cohorts of the city went along the street. She threw changing glass glances at men who passed her, giving smiling invitations to men of rural or untaught pattern, and usually seeming sedately unconscious of the men with a metropolitan seal upon their faces. So she's walking along the street and she's trying to attract men to her uh, for business, but she is paying attention to who and not paying attention to who else. In terms of class, who is she trying to attract? Who is she trying to, as it were, sell her wares to? Um, I'm assuming by like with a metropolitan seal upon their faces, like someone that's kind of a higher class, but maybe still like working in like an office kind of vibe. Yeah, a metropolitan seal is like a city person, right? A person of a higher class. Now she is unconscious of those men. She does not try to attract those men. Instead, she gives smiling invitations to men of rural or untaught pattern, that is to say, men of lower socioeconomic means, right? And so this is the place that Maggie is at, at the end of her road, as it were, in this text, is that this has been a book that's been about Maggie's desire to, to get, a, get ahead, right? To transcend. And yet at the end of the text, not only does she not even have an identity, an individual one, she's anonymized as a girl of the painted courts. Not only that, but she's no longer even trying to look at the men who are above her in socioeconomic position. She's now only trying to attract men of lower class, right? And Maggie's end here, or close to her end, right? She's kind of continuing to walk in the city, um, finds it's really kind of symbolic I don't know, it's most clear symbolic resonance here in the second passage, right? She went into the blackness of the final block. The shutters of the tall buildings were closed like grim lips. The shutters of the tall buildings were closed like grim lips. Think about what we've been talking about with regard to Maggie's desires and the inability of her to realize those desires. It's almost as if the city itself is closing on her, right? The tall buildings, she's below these tall buildings and their shutters are closed to her. The structures seem to have eyes that looked over them beyond them at other things. Afar off, the lights of the avenues glittered as if from an impossible distance. Streetcar bells jingled with the sound of merriment. At the feet, of the tall buildings appeared the deathly black hue of the river. Some hidden factory sent up a yellow glare that lit for a moment the waters lapping oily against timbers. The varied sounds of life made joyous by distance and seeming unapproachableness came faintly and died away to a silence. So what, what's the tone of this passage, one of the final moments that we get of Maggie? What are we meant to take away from this woman who is going into the blackness of this final block. Is this a kind of redemptive moment? Is it a 
you know, what's the tone here? What are we supposed to believe about Maggie's end? Is that happy? Is that happy things? Happy, 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 good things happening here for Maggie at the end? No, right? Just the opposite, right? And we get that through the way in which her low stature is contrasted with the tallness of the buildings. We get that with the contrast between the blackness of the final block and the deathly black hue of the river that's contrasted with the shimmering lights of the avenues, right? We get the silence of where she is contrasted with the joyous sounds of life that are far away and at a distance and unapproachable. It's almost as if where the character is in the story, all of the joyous sounds, colors, lights, and vibrancy of life is so far away that it's impossible for her to ever attain them, right? And so at the end of the text, we do not get a Maggie U as kind of like, crawled out of her disastrous childhood situation and found a way to make it, right, to realize, let's say, the American dream to get ahead, but just the opposite. If anything, she's taken a step back from where she began, right? So that's what happens to Maggie is that, like, you know, she turns to prostitution and she dies having been preyed upon. This is not in the passage, but she's preyed upon by a man who's described almost as if he's a monster, like less a man than a monster. So what about um, Maggie's mom saying only after she dies that she can be forgiven? What do you make of that, right? Mary at the end says, oh, I'll forgive her, I'll forgive her, but only after Maggie has died. What, what, what do you make of that moment? Why would this be the time when she can forgive? You might also think about this in relation to the co-cat too, right? Right after Eliza Warden dies, that text seems to take a turn as well. What do you think about that? I was actually just going to say that, that it reminds me of that and how like her mother received the letter and she was like, oh my God, my daughter. And so I feel like it's kind of the same thing in that like once they're dead, they appreciate them. But like when they're alive, like they're always doing things that they don't like. Right, exactly. It's only in death that you can offer forgiveness and condolence, right? But there is a clear similarity between what's happening at the end of these two texts, but, but there's a distinction as well that I think is really important. Because if you remember when we talked back about the coquette, that when Eliza dies, the thing that comes up out of the text and becomes the most important element of it is the moral, right? When the character dies, the moral or the lesson becomes the thing that the reader takes away from the book. That's not the case here, right? In the naturalist text, right? In the naturalist novel like Maggie, there's no lesson to be, there's no like good lesson, good moral to be taken away. There's just the hard reality that the universe is indifferent to human life, right? So when Maggie dies, we don't get like this lesson, right? Everything doesn't get resolved and we get a lesson that we're supposed to take away and learn. No, 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 no. It's a much bleaker and much darker perspective than that. So on one level, there is this kind of clear similarity, but on the other level, something has changed obviously in this 100 year span between the publication of these two novels that has um, changed in an interesting way. Some might be something to think about for the paper prompts.
I've talked about this so much, I feel like I have to put it on the test, but we'll see. Any questions about these ones, about these questions? All right, so we'll end really briefly with, okay, this is what happens to Maggie at the end, right? We see that her desire to kind of get ahead, her desire to realize some element of the American dream um, doesn't work out for her. Um, what about for Pete, right? The end of Pete, this is the one of the most ignominious ends in all of American literature for a major character in a text. Like, this is the last time we hear of Pete. Uh, Pete is at the bar with Nellie and her friends. Nellie laughs, what a damn fool she said and went. The smoke from the lamp settled heavily down in the little compartment, obscuring the way out. The smell of oil stifling in its intensity pervaded the air. The wine from an overturned glass dripped softly down upon the blotches on the man's neck. Finn, no more discussion of Pete, right? Think about the relationship or the connection, the similarities between Pete's end here and the passage that we just talked about with Maggie, where she is kind of um, beset by uh, the darkness, the tall buildings that are looming up above her. We can also see the same kind of thing happening with Pete at the end of his road as well, right? So how are Maggie and Pete similar then finally at the end of this book? What happens to both of them? either at the level of the language of how their last moments are rendered or more uh, broadly at the level of their characters. How are they similar by the end of the text? Uh, both of their downfalls are a result of being condescending. So like Maggie tried to rise up the social ladder again through prostitution and doesn't work. Uh, Pete left Maggie behind to try and transcend and it didn't work so it led to his downfall. Yeah, precisely. And Caitlin, that's a really good point about Maggie's. Um, the, there's a couple of moments where Maggie is being described uh, as a sex worker and she's trying to get business and she's trying to attract herself to people who are above her and she keeps getting rebuffed and rejected. And so eventually the person that she goes with, right, is this man who's described almost as if he's a monster. And so, yeah, that's another good detail to suggest that even in that last moment with Maggie, there is a striving, but it's rejected and it's rebuffed. And so too with Pete, right? And they both end in these situations where like darkness, filth is pervasive, almost overwhelming, right? They end either in the case of Maggie in a really kind of terrible and tragic end or in the case of Pete in a kind of pathetic end, right? With these women taking essentially all of his money, leaving him dead, blackout, drunk under a table with wine spilling onto his splotchy face. It's all, it's happened to all of us. We've all had a night like that. We've all had a night like that. But usually we pull back from it, right? But in this text, this is the last we hear of Pete. Okay? And so what's the judgment, just to kind of re re reinforce the point that Caitlin made, what's the judgment that the text is making about both of these characters and their actions throughout? Basically, if you start as nothing, you're going to end as nothing, no matter what happens in between. Um, yeah, yeah. Sam, you say that so joyously. Yeah, I know. You're, <laughs> such it's a, such a happy thing to talk about. Yeah, it's such a great sentiment. Yeah, especially at the end of the semester where we're all trying to do our best here. Yeah. 
you start as nothing and you end as nothing. English 325. I feel like it's very similar to Coquette in that it's almost a lesson to people reading. Like, if you do what Eliza does, you will die with no one. And then in this, like, if you do what Maggie and Pete do, you will die with no one, which Jan's pretty bad too. Yes, Caitlin, this is a great point to end on. And it kind of circles back to something we just mentioned a couple of minutes ago. You're right that in the coquette, at the end of the coquette, the idea is like, don't be like Eliza Wharton. But at the end of Maggie, the point, I think, knowing what we know about how naturalism works, the point is not don't be like Maggie, right? That's not the point. The point is, I think that we should feel bad about what's happened to Maggie, right? Something's changed in that hundred years where it's no longer kind of this um, cautionary tale. Don't be like Eliza. Now it's like, you know, don't be a society that lets something like Maggie happen. Does that distinction make sense? Because naturalism has a kind of, as we talked about, realism in general has this kind of advocacy bent to it, right? It's meant to challenge societal norms. Right. And by showing the situation of somebody like Maggie, it's not telling young female readers, don't be like Maggie. It's actually telling American society, don't be a society where something like Maggie can happen. So whereas they start in a very similar place, right, they end with a different goal or with a different objective. So, Caitlin, yeah, I think you're absolutely right to suggest that similarity. But in that 100 year gap, something different is occurring between the two texts about what the objective is at the end. Sorry, go ahead. Is it fair to assume to like, don't be like, you could kind of like go with, don't be that time period in England that would shun a person like that for their actions? Yeah, don't be the type of person who um, puts into place social structures that make it impossible for others to rise. Yeah, it's a critique not of individual actions like the coquette kind of is. At least one reading of the coquette is a critique of Eliza's actions. Maggie is not a book that is a critique of Maggie's actions. It's a book that's a critique of society, right? And that's completely consistent with naturalism more generally, right? We talked about that with relation to like the jungle or with relation to the kind of political objectives of realism as they come out of the Gilded Age, stuff like that. So that's the distinction. That's an important distinction, yeah. Cool, any last thoughts? Oh, folks, it's been fun. Keep in touch. Please remember to do CTEs if you haven't yet. I'm always available to you. It's been fun. Uh, I wish we could all be in person, but uh, as soon as we all can be, I hope that you all uh, come say hi to me. Uh, next year, not next semester, but but next year. All right, it's been a pleasure. Be in touch. Keep in touch. Bye. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you for everything. All right. Yeah. Have a